at Genesis 35 here. And uh, yeah. So Cam did 34, which was, if you were here, uh, dark. Dark. So we'll, we'll, we'll remind ourselves here in a minute of that. Uh, let's, let's read 35. It says, Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and all the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak in Shechem. And they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel, so it was named Elan Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, you are, your, name is, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he called him Israel. And God said to him, I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. And God went up from him at the place where he had talked with Jacob. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place Bethel, where God had talked with him. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. But there was still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair. For you have another son. As she breathed her last, last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder, where Israel was living in that region. When, while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Great passage, a little bit different than last week, and we'll explore that here in, in a minute. Let's have a prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Father, we, uh, you know, we do thank you. You know, as we have many times over the past few months, God, just for the patriarchs and, and with the honesty that they are portrayed, 
both in their highs and their lows, God. And we pray that we can learn, as we have many times before, uh, from their failures, but also from their success. And God, we pray you help us, God, to, to look at this period in, in Jacob's life, to look at how you work and how you turn his life around and draw him closer and closer to you, God. Be with us. May our hearts be open to your spirit's prompting, convicting us. Allow it to, to shine light into our hearts so that we can see ourselves as you see us, God, and be spurred on to pursue you with greater glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, it is, a, it is a very different chapter. If you weren't here last week, um, take a minute and just kind of skim through 34. It's a chapter chock full of darkness. Right? Jacob's uh, you know, children get in all sorts of mess as they're interacting with the people of the land. Uh, you know, uh, darkness flooding it is probably a little bit of an understatement. It's full of lust. It's full of rape, deceit, scheming. The use of religious things to plot murder and ultimately the carrying off of that murder. And of course, as Cameron, I think, preached about, uh, that even those, those horrendous actions, Jacob's response is one of passivity, really doing nothing. And that's one of the great tragedies, you know, of not just history, but probably even our modern world of good men that do nothing in the face of evil. And Jacob, in that part, in, this, in that part in the story, is very much guilty of that. One of the stark things about that chapter there in chapter 34 is God is not mentioned at all. Not once. And then we read 34 as you can see, or read 35 and as you see in 35 it's a very different scene. And so it's an interesting thing structurally what, what Moses is doing as he, as he writes this history for us but even structurally he's trying to help us to see hey this is a turning point. This is a moment of change for Jacob and for his household uh, from some seriously dark times to some signs of great strength. And it is, like I said, a, a great turning point. God tells him there in, in verse 1, very gently in, in the beginning of 35, to go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. It's such a simple thing what God says to him. But God is in some sense nudging him. Right? Jacob, 30 years ago, you were running away from Esau, and you encountered me. And when you encountered me, you made a, you made a, a, a big vow. Jump back there, chapter 28. Chapter 28, here's what Jacob says. After he has that grand vision of, of heaven open and a, and a ladder or a staircase with the angels ascending into, and descending, here in 28, here's what, here's what Jacob said back there. Chapter 28, verses 20 to 22, God, Jacob says, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I, I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. You know, God is in some sense here in the beginning of our chapter uh, amidst a period of tremendous darkness. He's reminding Jacob of the vow Jacob had made some 30 years prior. And that's a very interesting thing even to think about for our lives and our relationship with God. Right? I think sometimes we think, you know, especially when we first get baptized, that, that becoming a, a Christian, being born again, starting to walk with God is like a rocket ship. Where you just, you know, exponentially accelerate, climbing higher and higher. But once you've been a Christian maybe like five minutes, you realize it's a lot more like a roller coaster. 
right? Uh, we were in Orlando for, for this conference, and you know, when I was a younger man, I liked roller coasters, and one of the things that they had there was one of those huge uh, slingshots. Right? And I remember doing, the, doing that when I was a, a younger man, uh, and I was there playing mini golf with some of my nieces, and, and they were like, you, you know, so excited to do it, and I just looked and I thought, man, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> you know, but, but I think sometimes we think our Christian life is like that, just pulled back, and then we get baptized, just, just flying. But the reality hits, and what happens? Gravity takes hold, and down you come, and, and then, you know, that, 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 that ride, you're just kind of swinging everywhere. Jacob's life is pretty much like that. He has some tremendously high points. And then it's like, where did your faith go, Jacob? Where did your commitment to God go? It just all seems to fall away there in chapter 34. But this is a turning point. And it's a change, you know, for, for Jacob and for his household. It's one of those rare moments where everything changes. And I hope you've had those moments in your life where the fog lifts where your conscience is again awakened, there's a spiritual focus, the weight of the spiritual world weighs on you, the importance of it is magnified, and you just, you feel drawn back to God. And that's what Jacob is experiencing at this moment. A tremendous time of change. Now, tragically, it takes periods like chapter 34 for us to do that at times. It takes things in life getting really, really bad before we'll change. And Bruce and I were talking about this even in the fellowship before church. Sometimes that's life, right? I mean, you know, when you're younger, people try to tell you, hey, here's the path. Here's the right way to live. But when we're younger, we're a little bit more full of ourselves, And we think, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. And it takes us falling on our face sometimes before we realize, oh, maybe I should go this way. That's kind of like what's happening in this story. But thankfully, Jacob begins to adopt not the perspective of what is my will, but what is God's will? Instead of God being absent, God becomes incredibly present. And it's a tremendous time of change for him and for his household. And we'll look at three points here on how to, how to bring about that kind of change or cement it more into our lives. First, we've got to remove the rubbish. Right? We've got to remove the rubbish. We see that right there in the beginning of the chapter. Get rid of all the foreign gods you have with you. Secondly, we've got to listen to God. As I said, God is absent in 34, and He is very present in 35, and we are meant to take note of that structure. And thirdly, we've got to learn to internalize our identity. Amen? Remove the rubbish, listen to the Lord, and internalize our identity. All right, let's look at these. All right, this is Michelle's favorite time of year. If you didn't know this, right? it's a time of great conflict in our household. Uh, Michelle loves council cleanup. <laughs> Right? Where everyone takes their rubbish and they dump it on the curb. And she loves going through it and looking for treasures. <laughs> uh, and we did it the other day. We stopped. Uh, and she's like, look, it's a pool umbrella. And, you know, I'm like, okay, let's stop. She gets down and, you know, she winds it up. But guess what? It was broken! Who would have thought that something left on the curb would have been broken, right? <laughs> you know, Michelle hoped no, look, Sometimes you do find treasure. We got most of our furniture when we first moved to Australia from Council Clean Up in Sydney. Uh, you know, so there is some things to be found, but, but it's, a, you know, it's kind of a fun time of year. You go through your house and you just you get rid of all the junk you don't need. All the things that are broken that you've been holding on to. All the suitcases for our house that somehow we acquire. Right? I'm like, where do these suitcases, I, these are not our suitcases, why are these suitcases here? 
you know, and Michelle's parents dumping them, right? You know, but that's, that's council cleanup. Lots of junk, lots of rubbish. Get rid of it. Kind of what's happening here. I mean, Jacob, they've been traveling. He's become enormously wealthy. Right? If you remember back when, when, when this moment that God's trying to remind, of, right, remind him when Jacob was fleeing from Esau, literally, he, Jacob had nothing. Had nothing. 30 years of wandering, you know, some 20 odd years in Laban's household, uh, you know, working, working to, to, uh, to, to get his wives and then acquire more and more. He's, he's returning a very wealthy man, but he also has a full, full bit of a, a fair bit of, of baggage that he shouldn't have. Yeah. Some of it for sure was probably acquired in 34 when his sons ransacked the people of Shechem. But as Jacob realizes, hey, we're going to go and we're going to meet with God, he immediately turns to his own life and realizes there's stuff we've got to get out of our house. There are things that need to be removed. He turns to his house and he tells him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. That's kind of an interesting thing. Change your clothes. It's one of the rare times in the Old Testament that that phrase is actually used with this idea of, hey, you, you need to get clean if you're going to approach God. And Paul will draw on that metaphor multiple times in the New Testament of putting on your new self. You know, but if you think about your life and maybe you feel like you, you, you've come out of a dark period like Jacob. And Jacob's sons doing things you, you never thought you would do. Making stupid choices and decisions that have profound effects not just on your own life but on the lives of your children. Maybe you're coming out of that kind of period. Maybe you think, man, there's things I need to change. Maybe you started this year even thinking, man, I want to be different. I want to, I want to walk with God more. And then you kind of at the midway point here of the year, you think, gosh, my screen time is up. My Bible time is down. You think, man, I've got to clear stuff out. And you really, you think about this. I mean, if you knew Jesus was coming over to dinner tomorrow, you were going to have him over as a dinner guest. How, how would your life be different? I mean, would you like to sit down with Jesus and just go through your browsing history? Would you like to sit there with him and, you know, pull up your Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever, YouTube, whatever it is you're watching and, you know, you know let's have a look on continuing to watch. Would that be an enjoyable process or do you think... There's actually some things I need to clear out. There's actually some, some things of the world that I've brought into my life and brought into my home and some practices of the world that I've adopted as my own that I, I really shouldn't. And that's kind of what Jacob is doing here with his house, saying we've got to get these things out. The interesting thing about Genesis and the Old Testament as a whole is as they're clearing out idols and foreign gods, you're, you're confronted with the reality that mankind doesn't really change. All, all, the, all the gods of the Old Testament, they all centered around pleasure and prosperity. Sex and money. Us with all of our great modern growth and evolution, are we any different? No. The gods of the world we live in are the same gods that they, they, they wrestled with and they were faced with. And we need to make the same decision. 
clear things out of our lives. Famous 17th century, uh, I don't know if he's that famous, I never heard of him, David Clarkson. He says, though few will own it, nothing is more common. If we think of our soul as a house, idols are set up in every room, in every faculty. We prefer our own wisdom to God's wisdom. Our own desires to God's will. Our own reputation to God's honor. That's an interesting metaphor to think about. This idea of every room, there's something. There's something that we take on that we really shouldn't have in there. And so often we allow our hearts to become attached to all the wrong things. To all the wrong things. All the things of this world. And even the scripture that, that, that Bailey read when he's talking about contribution. I mean, the reality that we attach ourselves to things that God tries to warn us of, hey, these are temporary. These are things that, man, moths take out. Rust destroys. Thieves take. They, they are things that will not last. But Jesus is very upfront. But hey, where our treasure is, that tells us a great deal about where our heart is. And that actually we should look at, hey, what do I really treasure? What do I really value? That, that'll tell us what our idols are. Looking at your bank account, how you spend your money, what you do with your wealth, that tells you a great deal about what you really care about. It can help you to find idols that need to be removed. Now what do they do with those foreign gods and those idols that they uh, you know, amassed? They bury them. Kind of an interesting thing, right? Elsewhere in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, there's some cool responses, right? When they make uh, the golden calf with Moses up on the mountain, Moses grinds it up and makes him drink it. That's kind of a cool scene, right? But this is also kind of cool because what do they do with it? They bury it under a tree and then they leave. It's like they're having a funeral, right? They're having a funeral for all these idols. They're dead as far as they're concerned. You know, and I think that's a very different approach to sin and idolatry than we often take. I think a lot of times most of us would practice like sin management, right? Or idol management. We try to, you know, kind of compartmentalize it. We try to control it. Uh, we try to limit it. But we don't kill it. We don't put it to death. We don't bury it. We kind of, you know, we, 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 let, me, let me just kind of work on weaning myself off of it. I don't know if you're a band-aid just ripper or a slow puller. Right? The reality is, I think with sin, we're meant to be rippers. Barriers. Be done with it. I mean, there's an interesting thing here. They bury, they bury three things in this text. They bury their foreign gods, they bury the midwife, and they bury Rachel. These are things that are dead, that they are leaving behind on their journey. And I think, you know, I encourage us to take stock today. If you want to turn, if you want to have the kind of transformation from 34 to 35, these chapters, you have to be willing to remove the rubbish. You've got to be willing to turn the lights on and look at the trash you've let in your heart. And you've got to make a decision to bury it, to put it to death, to be done with it. Secondly, it's great if you clean house, it's great if you remove stuff, but you do have to fill it with something. Right? You've got to fill it with something. And like I said, it's such a great contrast of 34 having no mention of God and then you get into 35, and there's some 11 or 12 mentions of God. 
It's structurally, the Bible is like trying to hit us with a reality. Right? What changes? Something is different. Why is Jacob now talking about getting rid of foreign gods and, hey, let's go worship God? Well, he is now listening to God. Isn't that earth-shaking? I've studied the Bible with a lot of people, you know, in, in the 20 years I've been doing ministry. And lo and behold, the same pattern always holds true. Guess when people's lives change? When they start reading the Word. Right? Sam Freeman got baptized right before we left for, for America, and he was one of the longest-running studies I've ever had. Right? It's not a good record, Sam. Sorry. <laughs> you know, but I'll say something positive about him next. But Sam and I studied for a while, but you know, Sam would kind of have spurts of read, not read, read, not read. And then in May, he kind of had 30, a 34-type scenario in his life, where things got really hard, really dark. And he began to get rid of things in his life, like social media, that he was wasting an enormous amount of time. And lo and behold, what did he do with that free time? He started to read. And he read a lot more Bible. And wow, shockingly, what happened to all of his problems in his life? Did they go away? No, not really. But he changed. And he became a stronger, more resilient, more spiritual man. And he was able to weather the storms easier. And he became more focused and more, you know, clear path of, hey, here's the narrow road. And he gets baptized. It's not really rocket scientist science, is it? You know what I mean? I mean, really, it's not complicated. You know, Michelle and I went to this conference in the U.S. and there were some awesome parts about it. I love that we were a global fellowship. It was awesome catching up with old people, but it was also some deeply concerning things. You know, Michelle and I were asked to do a lesson, and, and the title that we were given uh, was forgotten. Oh, stirring revival. Right? Which is kind of, that's a pretty epic title. And then I get this email a couple, like two weeks before, saying the lesson needs to be completely non-corrective. And you guys know me, you know I'm really good at that, non-corrective. <laughs> Just warm, fuzzy stories, hugs, and, you know, flattery. That's me. <laughs> so I ignored it, you know, but it, it's, 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 I actually used it as material in the lesson, you know, but... Because I thought, yeah, you, you're not going to produce change through a hug. Yeah. It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't produce change. I mean, what was one of the greatest, you know, periods of revival in, in, in modern history is the Great Awakening. And what's the most famous sermon of that period of time? You guys know that? It's maybe an obscure fact. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. By Jonathan Edwards. That's the title. Right? That's, that's corrective. That is confronting. It's challenging. But it is God's word. It is God's word. And we often get, get caught up looking for all these other gimmicks to change our lives. All these other solutions to, to our, our problems internally, our problems in our, in our marriages, our problems in our parenting or with our kids, you know, our small groups, <clears throat> our churches. <clears throat> we look for all these different solutions and we try all these other little gimmicks instead of just listening to God. Instead of just opening the word more. And it's a tragic thing. It's a tragic thing to, to see not just people, but even some of our churches 
you know, look to all these other things thinking they're going to solve their problems when all the while they're neglecting the very thing that will change them, which is God's Word. And we've got to think about our own lives. You can, you can clear out rubbish, but if you don't fill it with God's Word, your life won't change. I mean, over and over, like 12, 12 times in this chapter, God is mentioned. I mean, the pattern is, is repetitive, right? Verse 1, God speaks, Jacob listens. Alright, verses 3 to 5 is all about Jacob obeying what God is saying and goes to Bethel. Then he arrives at Bethel and he does what God had told him to do, which was to build an altar. And then God speaks again there in 14 and 15 and he listens and he again makes more offerings as God has told him to do. You know, each step of this chapter, of chapter 35, each decision Jacob makes, each, each additional step forward in his life is dictated by God's Word. And what happens is order, direction. Contrast that with 34, where, where no one is talking about what God says. No one is listening to what God has to say. And it's chaos. It's chaos. And it's, it's, it's the pattern that's as old as, as creation. When God speaks, He brings order. When we ignore Him, what happens? Chaos. Are we listening to God? And I've referenced this book many times. I encourage you to read it by this guy, Brett McCracken, called The Wisdom Period. He pushes back very heavily at the age of information we live in and that we consume uh, or we try to consume an enormous amount of information, but by and large, most of it is completely useless. Uh, and a lot of it is just utterly false. And that's why our lives are becoming more and more chaotic. The quote from that book, he says, Today's post-truth world is like a claustrophobic escape room. Where we're all frantically fiddling with things on the floor, hoping they'll unlock an exit. All the while, ignoring a hidden in plain sight book that has the instructions we need. It's right there, waiting to be open, opened, waiting to liberate us from the rabbit trails and dead ends of a world of self-made truth. It's so, it's so true. And I'm encouraged, we've got to be a people that are all about the book, all about the word, all about what God says. And I appreciate what Scott's been doing with a lot of the guys, getting together on Zoom and just... Just going through Colossians. The women have been doing a similar thing. Going through 1 Peter. Unpacking it. Digging through it verse by verse. I mean, we've been, we've been plowing through Genesis for months on end. But we've got to realize all those things, that is, that is what feeds our soul. That that is truth. And this notion in our world that there is my truth is completely absurd. It's complete nonsense. And have a look at the, 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 the stats on society's ills, and it's very clear that the world does not actually have things figured out. It's plunging into greater and greater darkness, just like chapter 34. Why? Because no one listens to God. May that never be said of us. May that never be said of us. I encourage you, if you've gotten lazy in your relationship with God, if you've become inconsistent, sporadic, haphazard, if you're settling for a verse of the day being texted to you, repent. Get back into the habit of feeding your soul on God's Word. 
Get back into the simplicity of chapter 35. God says this, Jacob does it. God says, hey, here's what you need to do. He goes and does it. Get back to that simplicity of just, hey, God speaks, okay, I'll do it. That's what God's will is, okay, I'll follow it. I mean, there's really, there's a freedom in that, isn't there? It's a tremendous freedom. But just having someone else tell you, hey, do this. I don't know if you're a GPS type of person, if you like Apple Maps, if you like Siri telling you when to go, or if you're just one of those people who say, no, I know my own way. I don't know, there's a freedom of just kind of mindlessly following Siri. I'm not saying mindlessly follow God, but there is freedom in it. Right? Listen to God and follow. And when we do that, what does He do? Is He changes us. And He changes us radically. And it's an interesting thing that happens here in this chapter because it's happened again. You know, for a second time, God comes to Jacob and tells him, hey, your name's not Jacob, it's Israel. It's just kind of, I don't know. Someone changes your name. You think it would stick. But it didn't seem to stick for him. You know, and I spent some time even reading further ahead in Genesis, uh, you know, and, and it doesn't even seem to stick that well for him in the future. But I think that's also kind of one of the pictures of our relationships with God. Is sometimes it is hard to internalize our identity. I mean, for Jacob the deceiver, who has done a lot of deceiving in his life, and who has so, who has so practiced deception that even those around him seem to adopt those patterns and follow that path of deception, this idea that he is not a deceiver, that he is Israel, that he is something different, that he is a man that wrestles with God and not the deceiver anymore. It seems to be having a hard time getting that into his heart. And that's one of the tensions of the Bible, isn't it? This tension of, hey, here's what you are, but you're not there yet. Right? You know, that, 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 that your, your old self has been crucified with Christ and you're now free. Right? Samora got baptized today. She's buried in the water. She connected to Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. Her old self died. Amen. You know what? She's going to wake up tomorrow, and that old self is going to feel like a zombie in her heart still. Bad. Sorry, Samora. Kind of a downer for you. <laughs> but, but what does the Bible say is that she needs, to, she, she needs to count herself as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. She needs to consider herself as dead. She needs to train herself to see herself in light of that reality. She needs to internalize that new identity she has in Christ, just as we all do. But I think a lot of times we're like Jacob. Right? We hear, we encounter God, and He, he changes us, and He says, hey, you're new. And, and, you know, how many times does He use the name Israel? It doesn't. Right? I mean, he'll, he'll use it again a little bit in, in chapter 36, but he seems to struggle with really adopting it. And I think it's, a, and again, it's a challenge. But the Bible's very clear there is something important about names and understanding names. You know, even here in our text, as Rachel is dying in childbirth, which is a stroke of irony, because if you remember when she was having the, the war of the wombs, when she didn't have any children, what did she say to Jacob? Give me children or I'm going to die. And here, as she has her last child, she dies. But as she dies, what does she do? She names her son Ben-Oni, right? Son of sorrow or son of trouble. Jacob quickly comes in and thinks, that's not a great start to that kid's life. 
Benjamin, son of my right hand. Benjamin, son of my strength. But it's this idea of, hey, having the right name, and that's important. And Jacob knows that as a deceiver, and having had his brother throw that back at him, and, and pushing in on his identity, that no, 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 Benjamin, you got to see you're not, that you're not son of trouble, and you're son of strength. Amen. Amen. And I think so often we've got to understand what our identity is. Because your name is vitally important for understanding who you really are. And even in other, other stories, we don't have time to get into it, but you know, look at the book of Daniel, and you know, you Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that was not their Hebrew names. That was an attempt to assimilate them into the world's culture. We're going to give you a name. We're going to redefine you. We're going to redefine names and, and, and terminology to try to get you to, to integrate and assimilate into the world. And God is doing the opposite with people. God encounters people and He says, no, no, I'm going to give you a new name. Because I'm trying to pull you out of there. I'm trying to transform your life. I'm trying to make you into something new. And all of us have gone from being enemies of God to being His sons and daughters. Amen. To being people on the outside who have no hope to those on the inside who have great hope. To those who are living our lives in great hostility to God, to those who are God's people. I and mean, we've gone from people who, who don't even think about God to God saying, hey, you're my royal priesthood. And us understanding who we are is vital. It's vital in our walk with God. To understand our status before the creator of the world is not one of a slave, but one of his daughter or his son. Amen. Even in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, you know, the, the promise is extended that to everyone who conquers, God will give them some of the hidden manna and a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows but the one who receives it. This idea of intimacy with God and God has an identity of who we are and that that's, a, that's a special thing between us and God. That He wants to change us. He wants to transform us. He wants us to become something new altogether. And He does that through the power of the Gospel. But we've got to be careful. Because the world we live in has this fatalistic psychology that often immobilizes us. It tells us that what you feel is reality. And that those things are immutable and unchangeable. If I'm grumpy, I have the right to feel that way and to express my grumpiness. Everyone around me has to simply get over it. I mean, one of the great sins of pop psychology is to suppress your emotions. And we've got to see that. I mean, that's like foundational truths of discipleship and following God. Jesus, time and time again, turns to, to crowds of people and tells them, you want to follow me? Step one, deny self. Deny self. Your feelings, your desires, your sexual appetites, all these things that our world holds up as, hey, this is your identity. Jesus says, hey, you need to say no to that nonsense and you need to follow me. And when you do that, you become a fisher of men. You have a new identity. And that identity is a heck of a lot more valuable and, and, and far more powerful than the nonsense that the world tries to feed us. And I want to encourage us to, to see here at this time in, 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 in Jacob's life, God's again trying to remind him, hey, you are different. 
Amen. You're different. You're not the deceiver anymore. You're Israel. And has it been like a rocket ship taking off and following God? No, it's been a roller coaster. It's been up and down. But if he stays the course and he follows God, God will continue to change him and transform him. Does that mean everything's going to go smoothly for Jacob, for Israel? No. Even in this chapter, what happens? Rachel, the love of his life, dies. He has to bury her. And then one of his sons goes and sleeps with his concubines, which is not the first time we've encountered that in, in Genesis. You know, the whole you know, uh, Noah and his sons incident was something similar. And even the great King David will have a similar thing happen, you know, as he's dying. This idea of this power struggle that occurs, you know, but again, it's, what, what's the text saying showing us is, yes, God is renaming him. Yes, God is transforming him. But that doesn't mean that Jacob's circumstances are going to change. But it means Jacob will be a different man. That God is molding him into something that can withstand the storms of life. That's the promise we have. I encourage us today as you leave here, as you go home, you know, it's counsel clean up time for you spiritually. If you've got rubbish in your life, if you've got sin, if you've got attitudes, if you've got bitterness, get it out of your heart. Deal with it. Bury it. Leave it behind. It brings no life to your soul. It floods you only with darkness. Treat it as you would a dead body. Right? I mean, bury it. It's this idea that it's dead. Dead bodies don't become less dead. They don't become more pleasant to be around. They become less pleasant. So treat the sin in our lives that way. Clear it out. And as you clear it out and you make space in your heart and your mind, fill it. Not, not, with, not with social media. Not with Netflix. Not with Disney Plus. I don't know what you watch. Stan. Maybe a little bit of Premier League. Man. No. <laughs> back into the habit of reading the Word. Feeding your soul on God's Word. You don't live on bread alone. But on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when we do that over time, what happens is we change. We change. We grow. We become different as God molds us and shapes us into something useful in His hands. Amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll stand and sing together. You know, Father, we, we thank You for the darkness of 34, God. And we know often, God, it's times like that that we need to really just honestly fall on our faces. To humble us so that we look up and begin to make radical changes, God. And we thank you for Jacob and his household and their example of clearing out idols, God. We pray that, that you could shine the light of your spirit into our hearts and our minds, God. Stir us, convict us, provoke us, prompt us, God. Do whatever is necessary to get us to get rid of the things in our life we shouldn't have. Give us the humility, God, to even listen to one another in that regard. And help us to be a people that purify ourselves, that cleanse ourselves, God, so that we can draw near to you, God. And we pray, God, that you can, you know, ignite a hunger in us for your word, God. As we open up your word this week, you know, individually, God, what we pray, it can really burn in our hearts and our minds, God. We can taste and see just how amazing your word is, God, that it is more precious than all the precious metals in this world, that is sweeter than any of the foods we could ever taste. Amen. That in heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will stand the test of time. Amen. We pray you help us to be a people that fill our lives, fill our hearts, fill our minds with it, and to build our lives on that. 
We pray that as we do that, God, that you transform us. Do you make us into something new? We know, God, that you are, you know, the great craftsman, that you are changing us, that you are molding us. You are a loving father that disciplines us, that puts us through hard times, God, so that we can later on have that harvest of righteousness, Father. Enable us to be changed, God. Help us in this process, God. We know we fall short. We know we ride the roller coaster up and down, God. But we pray you help us, God, that you pour out grace and mercy on us on this journey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Let's stand and sing together.